My name is Stephen. I have the privilege of serving as the lead pastor here. I hope uh, if I don't know you, flag me down. I'd love to say hi and greet you and welcome you to church here. Uh, this morning we are wrapping up our fall vision series this time as we head into uh, this next year of really looking at what God is calling us to over the next season of our church life. Some things that uh, over the years as our session has been praying and gathering together, thinking about what is the focus, what is the center of that vision frame, the picture that God is calling us to lean into in the years to come. Uh, we've been dreaming together about how God is shaping us as an alternative society that stands in sharp relief to our day. And if we're going to become a community of grace, rest, contribution, engagement, and reconciliation, then we'll need to take on a different set of practices that index our heart uh, away from anxiety and toward hope. And there are things like strengthening the ties within our church community, becoming a space where people can meaningfully belong. Uh, beyond Sunday this past week, we gathered some of our leaders together on Tuesday to talk about what belonging looks like across all the different ways that uh, people can be involved here and what barriers to belonging might be present in our church. Uh, as we live and kind of operate in this contested socio-political weirdness of, the, of our time, how can we, in our own small way, be a counterculture to the individualism, to the tribalism that pull at the fabric of our life together? And one way to embrace that is to lean into the reality that in Jesus, God has knit together a body through which we belong to each other in all kinds of ways and we lean into that through the practice of community. Last week, Mike talked about the challenges and the gifts of the rising generation and how we are reshaping our approach to ministry with young people to put front and center what St. Paul calls the, the charisms, the, the gifts and graces that young people uniquely bring to our body so that in and through the life of this community, they can find a sense of self firmly rooted in God's vision of flourishing. And this morning, we're going to close out by talking about how we move outward toward the pressing needs of our city by becoming a community for our community. And so on that note, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 65 as Jane comes to read. This is a vision from God to a community in exile, a community who has been oppressed, who has been displaced. It's a vision in which God's desire for flourishing is as tangible as the person next to you. So let us hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his years. The one who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere child. The one who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them, or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune. 
for they will be a people blessed by the Lord, they and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox, and dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. A couple years ago, I took a trip out to Portland, Oregon to visit some dear, dear friends of, of ours and to go to a conference at a local church. Uh, and one day I had some time to go out and explore the city. Uh, Portland had been the center of national attention for a little while uh, during COVID um, and in the wake of the protests that took place after George Floyd's murder. Uh, and the news media would often portray it as this kind of post-apocalyptic battleground uh, between you know, the extremists on the right and the left. And for those who lived there, it felt like it was just another, you know, way to make the city a pawn in the culture wars. And while there was certainly some real evidence of those skirmishes witnessed by the emptied out streets, by the boarded up shops downtown, for my friends, the, the real heartbreaking story was the pervasive homelessness brought about by the twin diseases of addiction and mental illness that exploded during that time due to bad policy decisions at the local level. At the height of the unrest, Forbes magazine published an article called The Death of a City, and it opened with this line. How long does it take for a city to die? Downtowns across the country have emptied due to the pandemic, causing many stores and restaurants to close. Suburbs are doing much better, and in many cases, hardly touched by the recession. But in Portland, Oregon, contained violence and vandalism have combined with high housing costs, homelessness, and poor community leadership to raise the question, how long before this city dies? Article went on to describe the city leadership making this unorthodox move to decriminalize all recreational drug use within the city while only modestly expanding funding to treatment facilities. And so between 2019 and 2020, fatal overdoses of fentanyl increased in the city by 94%. According to recent data from the CDC, the problem has gotten so bad, it's multiplied beyond the city's ability to handle it. So policy, history, local leadership have conspired to at least raise the question whether or not the city's going to fall apart. But then beneath all of that, there are what the Apostle Paul calls the powers of this dark world, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And I couldn't help but wonder, where is the church in the midst of all of this. It had largely kind of abandoned the city and fled out to the suburbs. I went out one day with some friends to a local brew pub called Steeplejack, and I texted a picture uh, to Brian Purcell, who owns Three Taverns, with, with a little uh, caption beneath it that says this, the, the story of Portland's secularization in one photo. Started out Lutheran, was bought by Unitarians, and now it's a pub. And Portland is one of the most individualistic and secular cities in the nation. 42% of its citizens claiming no religious affiliation of any kind. Uh, the church has largely ceded the ground. And at first, when I was, you know, there and, and, and having this pint, I had this mixture of sadness and grief. I mean, I'm told that there are more strip clubs in the city than there are churches. And what does it say that I'm having beer in a place where people used to be baptized? Then again, the beer was pretty good. And the conversations around the tables might actually have been holier than the prayers that came out of the, of the pews. 
And then I started to catch my bearings a little bit because this conference that I was at was at this amazing church called Bridgetown right around the corner from the pub. They're dreaming with God. They're, 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 they're asking, what if we were to function as agents of healing and hope to catalyze not the death but the rebirth of the city? And they're not just asking the question. They, they see their future. They see their vitality as a congregation tied to the flourishing of the city. So they are, they're leaning in. And the church is always at its best when it turns to, not away from, the problems of the city and the pain of the city. So what about us? What about our city? What about its pain? Where have the powers and the principalities conspired with human institutions to bring pain and death not flourishing to the city? Well, the most obvious is the silver thread of policies and practices behind the evils of European slavery, to Jim Crow, to redlining, to the subsequent underfunding of public transportation and public hospitals that have shaped inequitable conditions in which many black immigrants and refugee image bearers live and the disparate outcomes that they experience. We know this, we see this, there are educational, there are nutritional deserts in our city, and as a result, not everyone has what they need to thrive. People feel alone, they feel forgotten, they are waiting for that day when the first will be, when the last will be first. They're, they're praying, why can't that day be today? And it's a far cry from Isaiah's vision of a new Jerusalem, a city where heaven and earth meet each other. See, in the world of the Bible, Jerusalem always has this kind of dual meaning. It exists as a physical reality. It exists as a place on the map, a place where the temple is, a place where sacrifices are made, the place where the Most High God takes up residence among the people. But it also exists as an ideal, as a, as a signpost, as a kind of blueprint of the city of God, where, where what Jesus calls the, the kingdom, it is a sign and a symbol of every city. It's the place where God's reign, where God's domain, where God's justice are lived out and are an everyday reality. And in that sense, the Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann describes Jerusalem as both a metaphor and a blueprint for all of our cities. And so what does that city look like? Well, here's what Isaiah says. Never again will there be in this new Jerusalem an infant who lives but a few days, be that due to poverty, starvation, or illness. Or an old man who does not live out his years, the one who dies at a hundred will be thought of as a mere child. Imagine that. The one who fails to reach a hundred will be considered a curse. This is a city in which the fullness of life is experienced where dignity, where honor are bestowed upon the elderly, where the hardships and stresses of life that wear down our minds, our bodies, and our souls are a thing of the past. In this city, they will build houses and dwell in them. They'll plant vineyards. They'll eat their own fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them to plant where others eat. You see, Isaiah imagines this day when people would work in peace and work to fruitful effect, where neighborhoods would not be full of empty houses with board-up windows, but instead would be filled with the sounds of children laughing. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune, for they will be a people blessed by the Lord, they and their descendants with them. 
a city in which the generational cycles of sin and pain and oppression, those things that we carry in our bodies will be no more. They will not bear the mark place where lambs could lie down with wolves, where all nature is fruitful, is benign, is filled with wonder upon wonder. This place where God's righteousness and justice are front and center. The prophet is building on the earlier promise. See, a king will reign in righteousness and rulers will reign with justice. Each one will be like a shelter from the wind and a refuge from the storm, like streams of water in the desert and the shadow of a great rock in a thirsty land. This is Isaiah's vision of a people to a people in exile, a city of flourishing in which human crookedness is straightened out in which the foolish could grow to be wise, in which the wise would grow to be humble, and they will be ruled by a king who is marked by justice and righteousness. In other words, this is a city that could never arise out of a human heart, but only out of the heart of God, in which God's desires are front and center. It is a word of promise. It is a word of hope. It's a word of joy and a vision of the day when God's shalom will be over all and in all, where the people will be knit together in bonds of unity and family, walking with God, leaning on God, delighting in God, and this weaving together of all humans and God and creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight. This is what the Hebrew prophets call shalom. And it's the place where strife is unimaginable because everyone's needs are met. No one is forgotten and God is near. This is life in the city of God. But the same prophet who delivered these words of hope, who shatters the old categories and gives rise to a new imagination, is also the prophet most well known for rebuking Israel for being a failed city. And how does it fail? Well, the self is placed at the center. Kings do not reign in righteousness. They appoint rulers who do not rule in justice. And the people divorce public spirituality, things like prayer and fasting and worship, from private spirituality, works of mercy, pursuit of justice for the poor. And this is important because the biblical Hebrew word for personal inward righteousness is this word, sedak. That which is right, that which is just, that which is normal. And the biblical Hebrew word for outward justice. Anyone want to guess what that word is? It's the same word. Exactly. So that means anytime you read the Old Testament in English, you can substitute the words righteousness and the word justice. You can use them interchangeably. Sedak is what is right and what is pleasing to God, both inwardly in, in relationship to God and outwardly in relationship to others. As Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. A righteous city is a just city. A just city is a righteous city. And in the biblical vision, you cannot separate out inward piety from outward works of justice and mercy to carry care for the poor is to be righteous. To be righteous is to care for the poor. And this is the drumbeat that the prophets keep on beating. You cannot separate what God has joined together. Personal righteous and outward justice are one and the same breath. The Catholic spiritual writer Ronald Rollheiser sums it up like this. 
The quality of your faith will be judged by the quality of justice in the land. And the quality of justice in the land will be judged by how the weakest and most vulnerable groups in society, widows, orphans, and strangers, fared while you were alive. So based on that standard, how are we doing? In America, in Atlanta, in Decatur, in Avondale, in Tucker, in 2023. What is the reputation of the church among the weakest and most vulnerable members of our society and what they are experiencing. See, because Isaiah's claim is that Israel's faith doesn't rest on the quality of its private spirituality, but on how the goodness and mercy of God are spilling out of the banks into a transformed people. And years later, St. James would pick up the thread with this, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep, well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is that? And in the same way, faith by itself is not accompanied by action is dead. We've been saying that spiritual formation is the process of being shaped into the image of Jesus for the sake of others. When we become devoted to personal righteousness that does not lead to outward forms of justice and mercy, it is not the way of Jesus that we are practicing. It might be a spiritualized form of wellness, but it's not the way of Jesus. Well, as we know, Israel did not hear the prophet's call for this city to be a place where personal righteousness and public justice were one and the same, and so the city of Jerusalem failed. It was followed by the pain and the judgment of exile. But even there, there is grace, there is good news breaking in. See, because there in the homesickness, in the, in the pain of the exile, a longing begins to, to be stirred. A, a, a longing leads to a remembrance of God's love, of God's mercy, of God's compassion. This longing begins to break through the patterns of numbness and silence and denial. And the people began to imagine that God's love and God's compassion will forge a new future, a new city, a new covenant bonded by forgiveness and the possibility that all things can be made new hope begins to come up. I love what Walter Brueggemann writes. He says this, hope grows out of suffering. Hope answers suffering. Hope turns the lost past toward the expected future. And the loss is real. The, the city is in ruins. The, it's defeated. It's failed. The old imagination of the city is gone. But in its wake, a new vision starts to come and starts to take its place. And this is something we see throughout Scripture, that whenever hope is born, it takes on a, a particular shape. Writing in his own time of exile, St. John the seer puts it like this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And of this new city, Jesus says, See, I am making all things new. I am fulfilling the promise that Isaiah foretold. See, I will create a new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. Jesus does not promise to make all new things. He has come to promise 
to make all things new, to return to shalom, to return to this world that is made new, the restoration of things back to their original intent, taking what is old and weathered and breathing new life into it, taking the broken promise of the city and restoring it to a place of delight. The Bible tells this story consistently from beginning to end, and it's a story of resurrection. It's a story of renewal, of God going to great lengths to be with his people, to be with them in the tabernacle of the old covenant, to be God with us through the incarnation in Jesus. And so too, at the end of the story is the story of God being with us, bringing his kingdom-like city into the world, making the city of heaven the place where God's justice and mercy reign, and making it a blueprint for our city. So what would it look like for us to pray in Decatur, in Atlanta, in Avondale, in Tucker, as it is in heaven. And if that was God's vision for Israel, and it's God's vision to this early first century church, if that's the future where God says he's going to meet us, how can we begin to live into that future in the present? Well, we can join in the process of renewal. We can see the places where the kingdom is breaking in, and we can join in. In a 2019 TED Talk, the New York Times columnist David Brooks said this, my theory of social change is this. Society changes when a small group of people find a better way to live and the rest of us copy them. He came to this after this period of intense loneliness and grieving over uh, his time in his life when it lacked any sort of grounding or any sort of solidity. One day he was looking around in his empty apartment and he realized that it was just a reflection of his empty soul. And the hard thing about being in this valley that he was in is that he knew he couldn't climb out. He needed someone to come and bring him out. For him, that came in the form of two friends who invited him over for dinner. They happened to be Christians. He was not at the time. And these friends had a kid in public school. And their kid had a friend who had a friend who didn't have anywhere to go. And so he asked him to come. And then that friend had a friend and he started coming. And that friend had a friend, and that friend started coming. And then six years later, when David would keep showing up for dinner with these friends, only now there were 25 kids gathered around this table. He'd meet someone new. He'd reach out a hand as if to shake it, and the guy would say, oh, no, we don't really do that here. We hug in this house. And what he found is that the people were doing a different way of being together. They found a different way to live that put relationship first, not just as a word, but as a lived reality. He found a new community in the shell of an old one. And this experience led him on this, this journey of discovering communities like that all over the world where people were reweaving the fabric of society together. Well, over the last few years, our race and biblical justice team has been looking at where the fabric of our community is torn and the more you look, the more you find. Those places where injustice have left pain, have left vulnerability. But we've also been looking at those places where God is inviting us to tell a better story and joining with people who are at the forefront of telling that story. Places where we have an invitation to come alongside others, be consciously displaced from our situation and enter into another's and then use our gifts together alongside the gifts there as ministers of reconciliation. Places like Friends of Refugees who are coming alongside people who have experienced the pain and displacement of exile. 
when that is because of you know, political or ethnic or religious persecution or because the violence of war has torn them from their country. These are people for whom the concept of shalom is not abstract because they know its acute absence in their lives. But then they come to a new country and they're faced with the overwhelming and disorienting reality of recovering from this displacement and this trauma in a country whose customs, whose language, whose governance, whose bureaucracies are a mystery to the people who live here. But they come to find friends who will help them navigate that, help them experience the welcome and the love of God through a people who desire to love God and love their neighbors. Places like Focus Community Strategies, who for over 40 years have been reweaving the social fabric of South Atlanta, creating transformation by fostering relationships between neighbors and allowing communities to leverage the skills, the gifts, the abilities that they have to undo the entrenched struggles and injustices that they face, the harmful structures, the inequities, the generations of bad policy that have produced so that people can actually begin to flourish again. Places like Peace Prep Academy that are an oasis of hope, supporting children, supporting families through housing, through education, through community development and opportunities for the English Avenue neighborhood of Atlanta, creating this space where children will grow up and have a sense of possibility, have a sense of future because they know that they're loved, they're supported, all in a place that has put Jesus as king and his kingdom front and center. Like, if you have not had a chance to go out there and just take a walk with Benjamin and his team, you cannot help but be inspired. And I want to be clear, we've got other mission partners. There's, there's other needs. There's other places where there is good, beautiful work for the kingdom going on. By no means are we stopping any of our relationship, but we are asking the question of these partners, how can we come alongside you and be part of what God is doing in and through you? We're also praying for a new person to join our staff team to Dream with us to help us carry this vision out. And that vision can take a lot of different forms. I don't know exactly what it's going to look like. It may look like helping stock and serve and organize a food pantry. It may look like you know, helping a mentor, a young entrepreneur, or using your musical gifts in a chapel service. I signed up to be a reading buddy. I know how to do that. I don't know exactly what it will look like, but I do know that when Jesus says, whatever you do for one of these, you do it for me. And I know he's not primarily giving a rebuke. He's not primarily giving even a call to action. He is giving an invitation. An invitation to find him in the place where he has promised to be, the place where renewal is needed the most. It's an invitation to trust the Spirit to use your gifts to use your voice to join in restoration, to join in reconciliation. And so as I wrap up this vision series, looking to the future, before we, you know, next week get, get the wonderful chance to look back at the 20 years of God's faithfulness in the life of this church, I just want to say those are the three things that God has put on our hearts to build toward in this next chapter of our life together. Practicing the way of Jesus for the renewal of all things means the renewal of our community, the renewal of future generations, the renewal of our city. And I would be remiss in not saying that, make no mistake, renewal is not our vision. It's not really about us. I am about to create a new heavens and a new earth, God says to Isaiah. I am making all things new, Jesus says to John. Renewal is God's vision. 
God is the architect. And so to follow Jesus is simply to follow him in the places where he is already breaking up the ground and starting the work. We find Jesus in those places where renewal is needed most. We find him in the place that we can pray on earth as it is in heaven, where that can be true of our city. And friends, we join him in a posture of expectancy and hope, awaiting the day when this vision of this place, where that was always meant to be our home, becomes a reality to the future of a king who reigns in righteousness over a city called the light and a people called joy. 